Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning. Good morning and happy Easter. Thanks for being with us. We're thrilled to have you here. My name's Andy. Um, Why don't we pray to begin? And then we'll get into the scripture. Our Father God, thank you for even that celebratory moment just then of remembering and, and, and hearing about you sending your son into this world because you've loved us. And you love us still and you will always go on loving us. And he was broken for us, but now he is resurrected in wholeness and fullness that we can't even imagine right now, but we will experience in the future because of your great love. So Lord, help us to celebrate together, enjoy this time, and hear your word as you speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, thank you for joining us, and I'm so excited for today's service, because what we've got ahead over the next half an hour or so are six stories of people telling you how they met Jesus. Three of them are in this book, and three of them are in this room with us today. We're going to have baptisms at the end of this preach, which I'm extremely excited about. And I just want to give you a precursor, essentially, to the baptisms themselves and what's going on here, why we are celebrating, why, we're, why we've got this large box full of water, which is reasonably warm, actually. Um, why we're doing all of this comes from the stories that we're going to read today. I want you to bear in mind that the story that I'm about to read to you is a story told by a man who claims to have seen a man raised from the dead. He claims that he met someone who rose from the dead and totally changed his life. That's the claim of this writer. And perhaps you're new to the Christian faith, perhaps you're just here as a guest, and really it's going to be your job to listen and try and hear whether you think this guy actually did see a man risen from the dead, or whether he was uh, mistaken or something like that. But at least what we're going to hear is the story of a man who genuinely believed that he met this man Jesus risen from the dead. So let's just begin with the first words. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. I'm just going to pause there because for me there's two significant details in this introduction that actually for me when I first was introduced to Christianity got my attention. I'd grown up as an atheist, many people here know this. I hadn't hadn't ever gone to church. I thought it was all pie in the sky, complete fairy tale. I thought that Easter Sunday was celebrating something that was purely myth. But when I read the Bible for myself for the first times, I discovered stories that actually started to make me think, well, 
something happened rather than nothing happened. And I'm just going to leave it there for now. Something definitely happened. And I want to show you from this short little intro two things that definitely happened. Now, I think you'll all agree with me. Something pretty significant needs to occur to someone pretty important for us to get a bank holiday in this country. <laughs> so last year, tragically, the Queen died and we got a bank holiday. This year, the new king is being coronated and we are getting a bank holiday. Something pretty significant is occurring to someone pretty significant in order for our calendars to get adjusted just by one day in a year. And then we go back to normal the year after. What must have happened to essentially introduce an extra bank holiday into people's calendars every single day of the week, uh, every single week of the month, every week of the year, for thousands of years. Something significant must have occurred, because think about this, what is the first day of the week? Now we would think the first day of the week is Monday. But as this was being written, the first day of the week was Sunday. Because the Jewish community would celebrate their Sabbath, the end of their week on the Saturday, and then they would start their week on the Sunday. And yet within a small amount of time, just a few years after whatever happened here happened, a large subsection of the Jewish community had started to take Sundays as their day of worship. Every single week. We now, thousands of years later, have a weekend where Sunday is the last day of the week essentially and we start again on the Monday. I just want to say something pretty significant must have happened to someone pretty significant for the whole world's calendar to have changed every single week. That's just the first thing. Second thing is this. Did you notice there's one little detail here that doesn't quite make sense. Mary apparently, according to John, approaches the tomb on her own, or it sounds like that at least. But then when she runs back to Simon and John, the one that Jesus loved, she says, we don't know where they have put him. Now, was John just a bad storyteller who forgot to tell us important information? I don't think so. John was writing his story to a community that he knew already knew the story. Sometimes you hear skeptics say, well, the Bible invented Christianity. These people got in a room, they wrote it down, and that's where Christianity came from. But that's simply not the case. John was writing his testimony, his version of the story, when everyone already knew the story. Because in the other gospel accounts, other eyewitness accounts of what went on, we know that a group of women went to the tomb that day. And John knows that his audience know that. So that's why he just includes that detail as well. We said, uh, we don't know where the body's gone. So it wasn't bad storytelling. This was John knowing 
that by the time he was writing his story, whoever ha- whoever's hands this story got into, they already knew the story about Jesus. It had spread like wildfire around the known world. Everyone knew the details, so he didn't need to include them. In a time of no social media, no phones, no emails, no newspapers, what must have happened that was so significant to someone who was so significant that everyone in their known world knew the story already and you could just presume and include a detail like that? Two small things that for me as a skeptic at least got me interested. Well, something happened at least, but let's carry on into the meat of the story. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Now, it's quite human, isn't it? Like, if I were telling this story and I had been faster than the other guy, I would have included that as well. (laughs) And reached the tomb first. He bent over, that's John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He, Peter, saw that the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, I'm going to ask for a bit of audience participation. It's not just the kids that do this, okay? Nervous size. Um, This story is written in a certain way where it doesn't give you all the answers because it wants the reader to try and figure stuff out and to think. What is the bit? There is a detail in here that should make everyone, if you're reading carefully, think, what on earth is going on there? I think it's in that phrase that he saw and believed. Now, I would like you to chat to people around you for a couple of minutes and try and figure out what did John believe? Because there's certain details in here that make it a little bit confusing. So just go for it. In people around you, what did John believe. Have a little chat.
sounds like you're running out of steam, but I hope that's not running out of ideas. I think these kind of passages are written purposefully for us to do this. They were written for communities to discuss, to think about together. They weren't necessarily written about to be preached from the front without any audience participation. So that's the idea here. But what is it? I think often this kind of question is helpfully worked out if you flip it around the other way. What did John not believe? Firstly, John didn't believe what Mary seems to have believed, which was that the body had been stolen by grave robbers. Why didn't he believe that? Well, these would have to be extremely inefficient and slightly stupid grave robbers to have gone to all the effort of unwrapping a body, neatly folding all of those elements, and then running away with a body which was probably by that point slightly falling apart, maybe slightly bodily fluids coming out of it, everything. You know, the, the band around their heads was tied like that so that the jaw didn't fall. It was sort of, and funnily enough, the grave clothes would have been probably more valuable than a body. So that clearly didn't happen. John didn't believe that the body had been nicked by grave robbers. John also doesn't seem to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, let's be fair to John. What was the last resurrection that he saw? He saw Lazarus stumbling out of a tomb in a comical way like Scooby-Doo, wrapped in all of these grave clothes, needing his sisters to unwrap them for him. And what would have happened to those grave clothes? Just dumped on the floor in a mess. Whereas these ones are clearly left in a slightly different way. So John didn't believe that the grave, grave robbers had stolen the body because they would have taken the entire thing with them. He also doesn't believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead like Lazarus apparently was. So what does John believe? Because the grave clothes appeared in a slightly different way. Have you ever seen that magic trick? I'm not going to do it now, but when, when someone gets a watch and puts it under a napkin and then brings out a hammer and smashes it, everyone gasps, and then thankfully the, wasp, the watch had disappeared. Yeah, seen that? That was kind of the appearance of the grave clothes, it seems. There had been a body inside, and then suddenly that body had disappeared. Gone somewhere, the grave clothes had essentially just flattened. So what did John believe? Well, I think it's important to think what would have been going on in John's mind at the time. He was, as we heard on Good Friday from Craig, one of the disciples who'd followed this man thinking that he was the man from God, that this Jesus character was the Messiah figure they'd been waiting for who would come in and achieve every, all of the great things that had been told about in the Old Testament. But the opponents of this man, Jesus, thought that he was a fraud or a fake, and then on a cross to everyone, he looked like a failure. And so going through the disciples' minds would have been this question, well, which one is it? Was he really the Messiah figure that we thought, or was he a fake and a fraud? And the answer to that question would have been seen in whether God had left him to rot in the tomb or not. Because in the Old Testament, there are multiple stories of heroes of the faith 
being taken up to heaven by God. There's Enoch, who walked faithfully with God and then is taken into heaven. There is uh, Moses, who was buried, arguably by God, but then no one could find the body. And then there was Elijah, who had done great things for God against a nation that had turned away from God. And as he was wandering home, got swept up in a chariot of fire with all of that background music and went straight into heaven. So God has this habit of picking up and taking those who were on his side. Whereas the scriptures say that those who were not, those who were fakes, God would leave to rot in the grave. So I think John is arriving at this tomb with that thought in mind. And it seems to John like God has endorsed this man and taken him up into heaven to be with him, not leaving his body to rot in the ground. So I think John is walking away with a sense of belief and relief that actually he hadn't got it all wrong. But I think it's really interesting that the story then continues. Because you could have just left it there. If you know the Gospel of John, at the end he says, I've written all of this so that you, listener or reader, will believe. And then this story finishes with John believing. So why not just finish the story there? And I think that's because John doesn't want us to see himself as the hero of this story. Now, I know Jesus is the hero of the story, but on, in the character terms, he doesn't want us left thinking he is the hero of this story. I think he wants us to learn from someone else in this story. That there is almost something deeper, more profound that was going on in someone else's heart that caused her to stick around. He had gone home to have a nice sandwich with Peter. Someone else was left there in that graveyard. And I think this is the heart of the story. It says this, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus, because he was carrying a basket of flowers and looked like it. <laughs> Apparently, there's a funny um, uh, Rembrandt painting. I've gone off script. Um, there's a Rembrandt painting about this scene where Rembrandt really takes it seriously and dresses him up in a gardener's outfit with, uh, with the, because there was a suspicion that Jesus emerged from the tomb naked and had to find some clothes. So he must have, I don't know, mugged this gardener, <laughs> tied him up, <laughs> taken his clothes. Distraction. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God 
and your God. Second audience participation. Why did Mary stay in the graveyard if she thought someone had nicked the body? Why did she stick around in the graveyard? Discuss. Okay. Because Mary, Mary clearly doesn't believe what John believed, that God had taken the body up to heaven. Because she's still asking this gardener chap, where have you taken him? So I'm not sure why Mary is hanging around in this place, lingering because she clearly doesn't demonstrate the kind of belief that John seems to be advocating. And yet, she gets prime place in this story, and she gets to see Jesus first. So why? What was it that she represents or demonstrates to us that's so important for us to see? I think it's something that even John hadn't yet quite felt or realized or experienced for himself that she had that became a model of how Christians, the church, should relate to Jesus. That you and I can experience and some of you may already be experiencing. Now to answer difficult questions in scripture, I find one question is very, very helpful to think about. And it's this, and it can, you can use this wherever you are in the scriptures. Where have I heard this before? Where have I heard a story like this before? Where have I heard about a character like this before? Where have I heard about this kind of event before? Now, where have we heard about a scene of a man and a woman in a garden with two angels? This is commonly well recognized amongst commentators on this passage that there are definite echoes of the early chapters of Genesis going on here. But I think there's a big difference. Because if you know the story of Genesis, God creates man and woman in a garden together to be with God and to be united together. But they sin and they reject God and they decide that actually they could do it themselves. They decide that they want to hurry the process. They want to gain things quicker than God is going to give them to them. So they rebel against God whilst they're there, and then they're thrown out of God's presence for their well-being at that point, but also as a punishment. 
And in order to stop them try getting back into the garden, there are two angels set up on the door, these big bodyguards with flaming swords that you don't want to mess with. What I love is what these two angels are doing now in this story. They're having a sit down and a cup of tea. Because they don't need to do their job anymore. Something has happened so that human beings can freely come back into the garden and to be in the presence of God again. Someone has done something to unite man and God so that we can all be with God together as we were meant to be from the beginning. These angels are not needed to guard the way anymore because a way has been made that anyone can get into God's presence and to be in relationship with God. This is the teaching of the Bible that as Jesus died for us as the sacrifice at the gate, we can now enter that gate through faith in him and we won't be executed by the angels because someone has been executed for us. That was Jesus dying on the cross. These angels now, they need to look for another job. So there's the echo of Genesis here. But I was put on by a guy called Alistair Roberts to a bigger echo, a louder echo, which I think is even more significant, and it's this. It is the echo of the rather unusual, slightly romantic poem in the Old Testament called The Song of Songs. And I'm just going to read some of it to you. And I wonder whether you will hear whether John had this in the back of his mind as he was writing. This is the woman speaking in the poem. I sought the one I love. I sought him but did not find him. I will arise now and go about the city. Through the streets and the plazas, I will seek the one I love. I sought him but did not find him. The guards who go about the city found me. I asked them, have you seen the one I love? I had just passed them when I found the one I love. I held on to him and I would not let go. Then the next passage, my love has gone down to his garden, to beds of spice, to feed in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my love's and my love is mine. He feeds among the lilies. And then the final one, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is un as unrelenting as the grave. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. Now, confession time. I've started recently watching more Din Disney princess movies. I'm going to blame my daughter who runs around the house with a dress on saying, I am Rapunzel. Um, but to be honest, I quite like some of them. They're good stories, although my critique of the old Disney princess stories is you largely have feeble women and patronizing men. And now in the modern ones, you have impossibly independent women and dim-witted men. <laughs> Whereas in Hebrew tradition, you actually had this incredible Disney fairy tale story about the most inspiring woman you could ever imagine who is willing to persevere through any trial and face any risk and go through any challenge on her own when necessary, when there is so much opposition against her, in order to experience the one thing she is dying to have, 
which is not love for self, it is the love from another, the unconditional, greater love that someone else, someone who she has so fallen for, to show her that love and to experience it for herself. That's the story of the fairy tale in the Bible, the Song of Songs. But up until this point, in that garden, with Mary despairing, it was just a fairy tale. It was a lovely idea that two people could potentially love each other in that way, but it was not the case. This was fairy tale and myth, because this kind of love did not exist in the world. It always went wrong. It was always corrupted. It was not as good as the story made out. It was too good to be true. But I think Mary stayed in that graveyard because there was something deep down that made her believe that it could be true. That it wasn't just a myth. That it wasn't merely a product of our evolution. It wasn't simply a cultural story to make us all join together and join forces. That actually there was truth that there is an impossible kind of love out there. And you may have experienced it in some measure when you've loved someone so much and they've died, you kind of can't believe that that's it. That something so powerful can be extinguished just like that. A fire that is burning so bright can just be put out in an instant. And I don't think Mary believed that it was possible. She had met a man. She had walked with a man. She had found a man who'd shown her this kind of love that was above any other kind of love that anyone else had ever shown her. Who had worked his power and his might to rid her of her own demons. Who'd transformed her life and gripped her with his teaching. This was a man she wanted to devote her entire life for and he had apparently gone. But I think she stayed in that graveyard despite what her brain was telling her, because she felt that it couldn't be true. That death could not have the final word over humanity, over her life. And all it took was one word to bring all the hope back. Mary. Mary. Jesus just says one word, her name, and suddenly the love that pours through her veins, that casts out all fear, the love that courses through her veins and is stronger than death, that cannot be extinguished by the worst things that human beings can do to one another, that cannot be extinguished by any kind of disaster, there is a love that coursed through her veins at that point that she realized it was all worth it and it is true. This fairy tale is the true fairy tale. It is the real one. It is the power to transform someone's life forever. And it's a love that goes on forever. It is not made up by human beings. It was made up by the God who loves us and created us and put eternity in our hearts. To hear this song and one day to realize what is singing. My daughter said to me this morning, she said, Daddy, what's that ringing noise outside? And I hadn't noticed. And then I listened. 
it had just been in the background and I hadn't been listening. It was the most beautiful songbird singing on the tree outside. And I was captivated by that. But up until that point, it had just been background noise. The Bible says God has put eternity in everyone's hearts. I think that is the desire for eternal love. It is that we are meant to experience the kind of love that seems impossible in every single fairy tale. But actually in Jesus rising from the dead and speaking Mary's name, she knew actually this is true. Now if Mary met a risen Jesus, that means that you can meet a risen Jesus as well. Because if he wasn't dead for her, he's not dead for you. He is alive and he tells us where he's gone. He's gone to his Father in heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit out who could make all of this real for us many thousands of miles away, many thousands of years later, in our hearts. And that is what we're celebrating today in baptism. Because love makes you do the stupidest of things, including having a bath in front of a room of adults. <laughs> and one of these guys forgot his trousers. Not saying which. These guys are going to share their stories. We've heard the story of Mary, of John, of Peter. Each of them believed at different times and experienced different things at different times. And that's fine. These guys have got their own stories. Some of them came to it from an early age. Some of them more recently. But all of them have experienced this love of God for themselves. And it's transformed them. And it's making them say this to you, that they believe in Jesus, that they would cling to him if he were here. But now because of him, they are going out into the world to share this good news with people around them. See, the thing is, there's a moment in that story where you slightly wonder, well, does Jesus love Mary as much as Mary loves Jesus? Because she's clinging to him, and he has a moment just like me where I'm like, get off. Well, that's where I read myself into the story. But actually, that wasn't the case. Jesus knew that there is a day when Mary can cling to him as much as she likes. In a new world. But for now, he says, let go of me because I've got a mission for you. To go and tell people about me. So that they could experience this. That is why we're here today. Mary told the first people, who then told the next, and the next, and the next and the next, and it has carried on down through the centuries and millennia, and there are three more people who've heard this story for themselves, believed and experienced the reality of the love of God in their hearts. So I think it's time that you hear their stories of how Jesus has transformed their lives. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.